Well, this morning we will be in the book of Genesis. So if you are using the Pew Bibles, that's on page one of the Pew Bibles, page one. Uh, and you can open up to there. <clears throat> we will be working through this book over the next number of months until we get to Advent or the season of where we uh, remember Jesus' first coming, his Advent. And we will actually be working through Genesis 1 through 2, 3, and I'll explain why that is in just a bit here. I think I made a mistake and put 4. It should be 1, 1 through 2, 3, and I'll, I'll explain that. But I'll go ahead and read through this, this whole section <clears throat> as we begin our, our time in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening, and it was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creature that moves along the ground. And the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in, the like in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase. Number, uh, increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and every living thing that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. 
and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever thought about how language and communication works? Uh, this is an entire area of philosophy. One, one book I have on my shelf says, The Language Animal, because it's hard to wrap your head around. What is language for? I mean, yeah, communicating, but beyond that. Is language primarily for facts, to give you a factual account of how things work? I mean, I'm, I'm sure many of you, you know, get home to your spouse and communicate about your day. Is your goal to communicate facts? I certainly don't go home and walk upstairs and tell Jess, on my commute to church, it was 75 degrees this morning, but it was 93 on the way home. And it was 28.5 mile commute. It took longer because there was an accident. And I had four meetings, which were supposed to take 3.5 hours, but two of them went long. And so I actually was in meetings for 4.2 hours. And then we just don't do that. Uh, we don't seek to communicate raw data, facts, right? So what do we do with communication? I'm going to argue that we seek to do things with words. And this is a philosophy known as speech act theory. And it sounds really fancy, but it's pretty simple. I'll give you uh, my favorite example of this <clears throat> is on my wife's 30th birthday, uh, we were actually packing up to leave Oregon for the first time and move to New York uh, when I took a job as a worship pastor out there. And so we had worked all day clearing out our house and we were going to go stay with friends. So I'm loading the truck and she's getting everything ready. And it's her 30th birthday and she doesn't know, but I have like a 50 person surprise party waiting for us after we get to our friend's house. And I, you know, the whole day I'm just apologizing. I'm so sorry. You know, we'll try and go get some food afterwards. And no, oh, she's doing great. And oh, some of you know, my wife has a lung condition. So she, she has some heart and health issues. And uh, so we get back to this house and she's upstairs changing. I said, oh, we'll go get some dinner. And she doesn't know. So she comes down the stairs and walks out. In that moment, we yell one word, surprise. What were we doing with that word, surprise? Oh, we're trying to accomplish something, right? We're trying to let her know we love her, that we care about her, that, that we, we want to celebrate your 30th birthday. So that was the intended result of our words. The actual result of our words was her clutching her chest and falling on the ground and me worrying that maybe I killed my wife. She's still here. She's not here today because she's with her girlfriend, but she's well. Um, that's what speech act theory is, is that we do things with words. And we all do this. This is why you say what you say. It's not just to produce raw facts. But unfortunately, in our very scientific world, we tend to think about communication that way. But that's not the main way that we communicate. The main way we communicate is to do something, to accomplish something. And that's what I'm going to argue this morning is what God is doing in this creation account. That's why some 35 times in this first chapter, God is mentioned. And 10 times, God said he speaks. God's not interested in facts. He's interested in doing, accomplishing his will and purpose in and through creation. So that's what's taking place here. 
Now, I mentioned that we're going to actually look all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, and look at them, already updated, you guys are rad. Uh, so, uh, we're, we're going to be going through chapter 2, verse 3, because unfortunately, our Bibles, they have bad chapter breaks. The chapter break shouldn't be where it is at verse 1, it should be at 2, verse 3, and here's why. Uh, the book of Genesis is highly structured, and it's structured around these two Hebrew words that occur 10 times throughout the book. The Hebrew words is ele toledot which we translate, these are the generations. And there's 10 times that that happens throughout the book of Genesis. And they structure the whole book. And the first one is in Genesis 2-4. So what we see in 1-1 through 2-3 is a prologue. It's the first words before the 10 toledot, the 10 accountings of the generations of God's people. So we're going to look at the prologue this morning, but this is not just any prologue. It's a prologue in which God speaks speaks all that exists into creation. So that's the first word of introduction here, is we're going to look at this creation, which is the prologue creation. And next week we'll deal with the fact that we're going to talk about creation again, sort of. Uh, we'll get there. But I have to set one more kind of preemptory stage for you, is that I am an old school uh, guy on this, and so I take it that Moses is the primary author of the book of Genesis all sorts of debates about this, but I did say that very carefully, the primary author. I would argue Moses is not the final author, and here's what I mean, is because in Genesis 14, 14, we're going to find out that Abraham chased these men all the way to Dan. Well, if you know your Bible history, you know that's a problem, because Dan is Abraham's great-great-grandson, or great-grandson, and so there is no Dan, which means that there was a later redactor, is the fancy word, or editor, who came back and they changed the name so that way the people reading it in Israel's day would understand it. Because Moses never goes into the promised land. He's never there. Before there is a territory of Dan, they have to be in Egypt for 400 years and they have to come out and they have to 40 years in the wilderness and cross the Jordan River and then they have to conquest the land. So there was a later editor or redactor. Now that's not a problem because we believe and confess down through the years that God has preserved his word. And so God's inspired word is that he is inspired by his Holy Spirit to write these books in this way, but he's also inspired the Spirit to preserve his word. So don't get worried. All sorts of people get worried about these redactors and, oh no, what are we going to do about them? No, this is God preserved his words. And one of the ways he did that was by having editors that he used by his Holy Spirit to make these types of edits to make sense for the first readers. So I'm a traditionalist. Moses wrote it. Someone else was the final editor. And the final form of the book, which we receive, is the one God has preserved for us down through the ages. With that housekeeping in place, let's dive into our study. We'll look at this passage through three, three uh, points here, <clears throat> though the first point has a long introduction. You're warned. Creating in parallel, bearing the image, and resting in God. So first, creating in parallel... Look at verse 1 and 2 again, because this is kind of the prologue to the prologue. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we're told that God created everything, but then there's emptiness and formlessness, there's darkness or chaos. Well, what is that all about? And then all of a sudden, verse 3, he says, he spoke, and then there was light. What are we to make of this? Oh, you should see the, see the literature and all the debates. Is, is there a first creation and then a second creation? 
did God create? And then was there a long period of time? All the, the arguments go, go round and round. Some say that God created and that then there's this big gap between verses 2 and 3. And he created, and for whatever reason, he let the earth become formless and void. And so he re-picks up creation in verse 3. And some say that's because Satan was in charge of it, and the fall is the reason why the earth went formless and void. Oh, there's tons and tons of arguments for this. But I just want to say this. We don't use language primarily for just raw facts. We use language to do things with our words. So our question for this morning is, what is God doing? with his word, with his declaration that he has created. Well, God's speech, God's actions happen because of his word. He speaks to us, bring about his intended result. And the central idea of our passage this morning is God created all things, and particularly humans as the crown of his creation to enter into his rest. But the way that God goes about creating, and this language of uh, the emptiness, formless, and void, is these rhyming Hebrew words, tohu vabohu, and it can mean unformed and uninhabited. So the point that God is getting across, what he's doing with his words, is that God speaks, and what is unformed becomes formed. That by God's speech, what is uninhabited becomes inhabited. Don't get overly caught up in the, the different arguments about what this could potentially mean. No, God is doing things with words. And this, I'm going to say, is critically important to understanding Genesis, but the first five books of the Bible is what's called polemical theology. There's your $5 word for the day. Here's the point. Polemical theology is an argument. And so what God is doing is he writes and has Moses write in this way, to argue against the opposing worldviews of his day. Let's think with me for a minute. If Moses wrote this after the Exodus, which I think he did, then what did the Israelites just experience? Some 400 years of living in Egypt, where they worship the sun and the moon and the stars and the rivers and the frogs. So God is writing a creation account through Moses to say, I'm going to make fun of all that. I'm going to mock. I'm going to do polemics, battle against that worldview. So what is the creation account doing? Is it showing them how silly it is to worship anything less than the God who speaks and the stars jump into being? That's what he's doing. Don't get caught up on all the details. Oh, there's fun arguments to wrestle through, sure. But the main thing that we're meant to see here is God chose to create everything by speaking and he's teaching his people, this is how it is to work. And so he uses this structure, which is to shape their whole lives. He's doing something with words. The six days is one of those big arguments. Oh boy, what do we look like? Are these six 24-hour days? Are they six ages? Is it a literary framework? The gallons of ink that has been spilled on this. God is doing things with words. So at the very least, what he's doing is he's showing them that in six days he spoke whatever you want to make of the days, but then he rested. His purpose was to create a people to rest with him. Now, why would that be important for a people who just spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt? Because they've been called to enter into God's rest. He's doing things with words. Now, there are some Christians who have said that the central reason for the decline in Christianity in America and the reason our young people have left the faith is because we've lost our, our, our hold on these six 24-hour days. My personal take, I, I think the brother doth protest too much. 
most Christians down through the years did not hold to this tight structure of 24 wooden literal days. That's a relatively recent thing. Many just took it to mean that God created. And he's clearly giving them a pattern for how the work is to week and the Sabbath rest that we'll see. Whatever you make of those days and those times, the point is clear. God accomplishes his work and will through his word. That's the point. I'm not going to get into all the details and the arguments this morning. I'm just going to give you one illustration which hopefully settles this for you. If you were to look at a painting of a car, of a famous car, or a a fine high-def picture of a car, would you ever use that to rebuild the engine? Well, of course not. The painting is meant to do something. To what? To cause you to marvel, to cause you enjoy, to, to think about the, the, the artist and to think about the, the craftsmanship. If you want to rebuild the motor, you go get a, a manual. And so my argument this morning is that Genesis 1 is a painting, not a manual. It's a picture, not a guidebook. That's what God is doing with his word here. He intended to give us a picture to marvel at the God who is there and who speaks and things jump into being rather than a detailed manual with all the bullet notes, bullet points and footnotes for how things work. So one of the saddest things about these creation account wars is that what happens is we get so wrapped up in worrying about the mechanics of how things work that we've lost sight of the master craftsman who accomplished these things. That would not have been the case for the first readers because again, The purpose of Genesis as a whole book is to to tell the story of creation, fall and flood, and of Abraham and his people, which he redeemed for his glory and the good of his people. So don't miss the central point. God is doing things with his words, and his intention is to cause us to marvel at who he is. So when you read this account, is the first thing an argument over how old the earth is? Or do you pause at the God who is there and who speaks and everything obeys, because that's the point. So now with that grid set, let's look at these creation in parallel, because I don't know if you noticed this, but verse uh, day one and day four are in parallel. They deal with light, and day two and day five are in parallel. They deal with the heavens and the waters. And day three and day six are in parallel. They deal with what's on land. So let's work through these six days quickly in this parallel account. So I'm going to read verses 3 through 5 and then 14 through 19, dealing with day 1 and 4. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And down in verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vaults of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. It was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Did you catch the parallels there? It's a highly structured account. Day one, God creates light. What does it mean to create light with no sun or moon or stars? Well, many have argued that God is light, John will tell us. So it could have been that. Notice what he's doing with his words. God speaks and darkness is overcome with light. 
Well, when you live in the ancient world and there's no flashlights, the idea that someone speaks light into existence is a rather remarkable thing. But more than that is you have this later in verse 15, he just says he made two great lights. He doesn't name them, just two great lights. And there's one that's a little bigger. It rules over the day and the little one rules over the night. It's polemical. Notice what he's doing. He's mocking Ra, the sun god, and the moon gods. And then he says, oh yeah, and by the way, he also made the stars because that's what they worshiped. God doesn't even justify the greater and lesser lights with names because he spoke them into existence. He doesn't need them. They don't, they're not worthy of worship. No, God speaks and his word accomplishes his purposes. Now look at day two and five, verse six through eight. It says, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation and seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit and seed in it according to its various kinds. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds. I went too far. Uh, we'll skip over to uh, verse 20 through 23, excuse me. Uh, and we'll do day five. The water teeming with creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living thing with uh, how the water teems and it moves about in it according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And he blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So day two and day five, we have this heaven and water, the, the skies. At first, he says, there's the waters and waters and he separates them. And there's a vault and what are you supposed to make of that? And again, the whole creation account is told from the earth's point of view for the Israelites who are coming out of the land. And so what does it mean to have waters above and waters below? Well, that, there's, you should see the scientific stuff that they try and come up with. But for someone who's going to read this book, what's important is at the end of Genesis, you're going to get a seven-year drought, which is to say, who controls the waters? See, in the ancient world, the waters were a place of chaos, uncontrollable waters. But God speaks, and the waters separate. Waters above, waters below. That's what's going on. Moreover, then he goes in and he speaks of he creating the great sea creatures. That's important for this polemical thing again. See, in Canaanite literature, the sea dragon or great serpent was the main enemy of Baal, the fertility god, and they would do battle. And if Baal won, then they'd have a good crop year. Well, but not for Yahweh. There's no battle. He speaks, and the waters are up, and the waters are down. He speaks, and the sea dragons appear. And they live in the waters where God puts them. That's the point. Don't, don't get lost in the details. It's a painting, not a manual. Okay, now 9 through 13 and 24 through 25. <clears throat> and God said, uh, 9 through 13, that's what's wrong. Okay, we'll start. The land producing vegetation. There we go, verse 11. The land produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit and seed according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their various kinds, and trees bearing fruit, and its seed according to its various kind. And God saw that it was good, and it was evening, it was morning, the third day. And then skip down here to the sixth day, verse 24. 
And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals. So according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Once again, by speaking, he, he separates these uncontrollable waters and gets land. And then from the land itself, all these creatures come up. He says, let them bring forth from the land. That's what God is doing here. Now, interesting little side note, of course, is you don't have a sun or moon until day four, and yet you have vegetation on day three. You probably don't have bees until day five, which you kind of need for all those like living things. So again, it's a painting. Read it like a painting. The purpose of this creation account is to put on display God. He's the subject. He's the one doing all of the creating. One scholar put it this way, the rhythm of God plus a verb demonstrates several things. The power of God's word, the relationship between God and creation, and God's interest in measuring the character. That's it is good. God measures the character and so forth. Above all else, the reader is confronted with God, the creator. And not just any creator. The creator who speaks and everything exists. So by way of application, in our day and age, it is so hard to stop down and just stop and slow down and marvel at creation. We live at such a pace, I fear that we've lost the wonder of creation. Maybe we're on special vacations, but most of us cannot fathom life without technology and some distraction thing. I encourage you, try this. Try a technology fast. Just start one night a week. Put your phone away and work yourself up to one day. It'll be seven in the morning and you'll be like, I swear it's got to be almost dinner time. Uh, because we have this constant just influx of stuff coming at us. Slow down and enjoy God's creation. Put, put the phone away and go to a, a park and just walk. And yes, if somebody calls, you can get it later. Just go and enjoy creation. Take a paper Bible. They, they still exist. Take a paper Bible and sit on a bench in a park or on the beach and read Genesis 1 or read Psalm 8, which Dean read from earlier. Read from Psalm 19 and meditate on what it means that the heavens declare the glory of God. Speaking of technology. <laughs> See, I grew up in the Redwoods. And so for me, I grew up hiking in the Redwoods. And if you've never been to the Redwoods, it is one of those places on earth that just grabs you in a very interesting way. Uh, so a couple of years ago, we were going on, a, we were going on a, a road trip down to visit the grandparents, and we were going to take Ellie for the first time to see the redwoods. And she was just like, can we just, they're just trees. I mean, I've seen trees. Can we just go home? She really wanted to see her, her cat, and she was getting a new kitten, so she was super excited. And Jess and I were trying to explain, no, you don't. Until you see them, you can't quite understand. And, okay, fine, you know, so we're driving through, and we're driving up the Avenue of the Giants, if you've ever made that drive, the, the trees are encroaching on the road, because they're so big, and uh, all of a sudden, she starts getting a little more, oh, 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 that's a big tree, and I pull over in her fairly average grove in the middle of the Redwoods off of the Avenue of the Giants, and she just sits there marveling, give me your phone, I'm taking pictures, because the Redwoods just grab you, they, they force the majesty of God upon you. And if you've ever spent much time in them, it's always a good 20 degrees cooler in the redwoods because the trees actually reach for the sun. And because they're so big, it's just quiet. You don't hear as much. They just kind of deafen the noise. I'm sure there's places like that that you've been. 
that just grab you. Maybe it's the beach and the storm or the Grand Canyon or something. But I worry that our pace of our lives in this world has caused us to get to this chapter and just worry about the details and how did it all work instead of saying, wait, no, no. What is God doing with his words? He's calling us to be in awe of the God who is there and who, who speaks to us. We, we read from Psalm 8 earlier, and, and, and Psalm 8 is this commentary on Genesis 1, as we'll see. But there's this incredible reality that we see in creation itself, but that's not the end of it. Because as Psalm 8 says, it culminates in the creation of man, of all things. So this is our second point, bearing the image. Look at verses 26 through 28. So then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the sky and over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The Imago Dei, the image of God, another one of those things, gallons of ink have been spilled arguing for what is the image of God. But did you catch in the text, there's a chiasm, that structuring element. We have an introductory point and another point, and it goes back. Did you catch it? Verse 26, he is to rule. Mankind was made to rule over this creation that God had just made. And in verse 27, in our image we made them, so male and female, equally created in the image of God to, verse 28 again, rule over them. So at the very least, the text is showing us that central to the image of God is this creation mandate, it's been called, to rule, to have dominion, some translations say. That's where Psalm 8 is helpful, because Psalm 8 says that God has crowned mankind with glory and honor. We are kings. And we'll see next week, we're supposed to be king priests. We're supposed to rule over and have dominion. And we're supposed to mediate God's presence to the world around us. That's central to the image. And there's other things as well. A second element is this made male and female. Why is that highlighted? Well, for one thing, it shows the absolute equality of men and women. There's no, no radical subordinationism or anything like that. No, no, there, there might be different roles, but... No, men and women are made in the image of God, equally, entirely. But in the context of Genesis, the reason this is so important is that part of the creation mandate is that covenant of marriage, the filling, multiplying. That's very clearly built into this creation mandate, as we will see. I'll come back to that in a minute. But first, a third element of the image of God. Did you catch it? It's so easy to miss. Some ten times God said, but also to them, he says, to them. Uh, if you go look carefully, all the rest of them is God said, God said, God said. But then when it comes to man and woman, God said to them. So part of the image is this communicative relationship with God, the ability to speak, to receive, to speak back. So the image of God is, is bound up with this call to rule and have dominion, this call to be fruitful in, in relationships, and then also to be in relationship with God. Now, uh, we could spend so many weeks dealing with these topics, but I want to focus on that second element, that complementarity of men and women for a bit here. You see, our culture has separated sex from marriage. 
And now it's doing everything it possibly can to divorce the category of biological sex from gender as well. And the more technology advances, so too have people's desire to reimagine themselves as something else. Even our language does this. It used to be called gender reassignment surgery. Now it's called gender confirmation surgery, as if you're confirming this person's gender by changing it. Well, so the irony, of course, is there's never been a gender that was confirmed or reassigned. It's only ever discovered. And up until fairly recently, it was only discovered when the baby came out and you said, it's a boy or a girl. Gender's only ever discovered because it's a created thing. God creates them, male and female. We don't get to pick and choose. That's a God thing. It's on his side of the equation. But as technology has advanced, so too is the extent to which people want to deny God's ultimate rule over them. So we'll talk about the fall next week. Did God really say that you have to be what he made you to be? That's precisely what Romans 1 is talking about. That the creatures have denied the creator his right to rule. Instead of worshiping him, they worshiped and served the, their creatureliness. Men and women, both worshiping whatever vision that they come up with for themselves. And Romans 1 says, as an act of judgment, there gets to a point and God delivers them over to that lifestyle as an act of judgment. And there's an important point of society, or a point of application here is our society worships freedom from all constraints. But do you ever thought about it? True freedom requires appropriate constraints. Is a fish outside of water free? Well, it's free to die, because that's all it can do. True freedom requires certain constraints. If you don't have those constraints, you're not actually free in any meaningful sense. And so, in the greatest of ironies, by throwing off every type of constraint, we're actually just destroying real freedom, creaturely freedom. But a second reason for unwinding gender in our day is one that we should actually take the time to think through. And that is that there has been a tendency, and it has happened down through church history as well, to play into gender stereotypes, defining men and women according to these goofy stereotypes. I call this John Wayne, uh, John Wayne kind of idea of gender, where men wear boots and women wear skirts. Where did that come from? That's not in the Bible, but it has shaped generations. See, a girl who doesn't like dresses and makeup is not a tomboy. She's a girl. A boy who hates playing in the mud and might not be an athlete or a good mechanic is a boy who's going to grow up to be a man. When did we redefine maleness and femaleness in these ridiculous gender stereotypes? And there have been times the church has been complicit in this, and we can't let that happen. That has been so much part of the problem. One of the saddest things in Western churches have done is playing into the hand of these gender stereotypes and wondering or looking askance at a man who doesn't quite meet our test of manhood or a woman who doesn't quite fit the picture. Now, whatever you hear in Genesis 1 this morning when he made them male and female, you better understand the gender stereotypes are the furthest thing from the mind of God. No. And moreover, it's not saying that the image of God is bound up only to man and woman in marriage. Now, that's essential, as we'll see, but... Jesus is the image of God par excellence, the perfect image of God, and he was single. So it's not that either. Now, of course, there is a tension there because man and woman require each other to procreate. 
God is the creator, and they're made in his image as procreators. And when the Earth's population is two, you have to do a fair bit of procreating to get the Earth's population to grow. So yes, that, that is part of the image, for sure. What the chapter is certainly saying is that God created human beings to carry his rule forward as king priests by filling the world with other image bearers. And a huge part of that is found there in verse 28 in that covenant of marriage that you see. This is the entire God-given vision for life that is actually being questioned in our day. Uh, Al Mohler recently mentioned an article in Vogue magazine that said this, quote, having a baby in 2021 is pure environmental vandalism. The author wrote this, for the scientifically engaged person, there are few questions more troubling when looking at the current climate emergency than that of having a baby. This is a whole worldview. It's called antinatalism against babies. I've met some, some people that wrestle with this, and, and some do it for different reasons. Some of them, it's because of you know, climate change is their worry, and more people overpopulation. For other people, I met one guy and had a big, long conversation with him, and his argument was literally, people are horrible, and basically everywhere they live, they destroy things, so we just shouldn't have any more people. And I still don't quite understand how that fits, you know, <laughs> why you keep living, but other people shouldn't, but okay. But I'll tell you a practical way where this played out, which just cracks me up to this day. So I, I, when I worked as a, a manager in a banking center, uh, there was a guy who worked for me, a really sharp guy, and, and we had great conversations, and, and I'd try to evangelize him, you know, and he'd, he'd tell me his thing. But he shared the same view, and he said overpopulation is the greatest difficulty that we're going to have to deal with in, in, in our time. And this, this argument happened before back in the 60s and 70s, and we were going to run out of food. So, you know, this has happened. But what really grabbed me, I was thunderstruck when he said the second thing, which was his little bit of hope. He said, but thankfully, all the people with the highest IQs are only having one child or none at all. And I fought hard not to respond with biting sarcasm. And I was able just to ask, well, do you worry about all the stupid people taking over the earth? Because if the smart ones only have one kid, you're not going to have a lot of generations of, of really smart people anymore. And then I went on to explain, and you should have seen his face. He was, I never thought about that. Like, if only stupid people have kids, then we have a big problem. But then I, then I brought up to him, I said, you know, what, what about a country like China? Who, who, you know, one baby law. I mean, they, they have a whole generation that is, that is being called the broken branch. Millions of men who will never have the option of taking a spouse because of the millions of baby girls who were aborted or abandoned. Uh, no, we're, we're not smarter than God. God made them male and female in his image to be fruitful and multiply. And that's not to say that everyone has to get married. No. Even by Paul's day, the world was different. And Paul would say to, a single life is a flourishing life. He, he even encourages it. He says, hey, you get married, you're going to have trouble. Uh, you know, those other people, they're hard to deal with sometimes. But the reason why this image of God is bound up with marriage is summarized really well by Russell Moore in his book, The Storm-Tossed Family. He puts it this way, marriage is important to everyone in the church because marriage is a picture to the whole church of what it means to see Jesus and his people joined by the cross. Here's what he means. Not everyone will be a mother or a father, but everyone will be called to model mothering and fathering within the community of the kingdom. Not everyone is called to marriage, but everyone is called to the gospel. Marriage matters then for everyone because marriage is not just about marriage. 
Marriage is about the cross. That's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 5. The marriage is a picture of Jesus laying down his life for his bride, the church. So practically, what does this look like in your life? Who are you mothering or fathering or brothering and sistering? Who are you caring for? Members of Bethany, I want to challenge you and encourage you to care for one another well, to mother and father. Uh, the word discipling, Mark Dever coined it, and he uses it to say just intentionally doing spiritual good to somebody else. Who are you discipling? Whether it's mothering or fathering or sistering or brothering. I want to encourage every member of this church, have one or two people. I don't care if you meet with them only once a month, but that you meet with them and just see how they're doing. Mother them, father them, or sister them, brother them. Seek to see how they're doing. Encourage them in the Lord. Pray for them. Pray with them. This is how this image of God works itself out in the life of the church. Because we are all called to care for each other. To push each other on in this walk. Whether it's for tea or coffee or a walk in the park, that is how the image of God practically works itself out in our mothering and fathering and brothering and sistering of each other. Well, that brings us to our final point, resting in God. And this is verse chapter 2, 1 through 3. I already read them. I'm not going to read them again for time's sake. Speaking about this rest, a couple of things about these verses which are different uh, is all of a sudden there's no evening and morning unlike the other days. And it is a blessed day, the first thing that's been blessed. First the birds and the, and the fish were blessed and then humans, but now the day is blessed. It's a blessed day with no evening and no morning, which is a way of saying that God's rest is eternal. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is Shabbat, where we get Sabbath, and his Sabbath never ends. And, and so here, this is what theologians have called the Adamic covenant or the covenant with creation. The word for covenant isn't used here, but it's used in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. And it says that Adam broke the covenant that God had made with him. And the reason why that Adamic covenant is such an important thing for us to hold on to is that the covenant calls God's people into God's rest. Just like a covenant relationship in marriage is a committing to each other. God commits to his people and they respond in commitment to him to join his rest. And the entire story of the Bible can be told as one of rest lost and rest regained. Milton put it, paradise lost and paradise regained. We'll get to that next week. But everything in the Bible is driving us to this rest of God. That's why Genesis on this seventh day is going to be a paradigm, as we'll see. In Genesis, God rests from his creational labors. In Exodus, the rest is the seventh day, resting and, and gathering manna. You no longer do that. As you move on to Leviticus, the, the rest becomes a rest for the land. The land is meant to have its Sabbaths. And part of the reason why they're exiled, the prophets tell us, is because the land was not Sabbathed. It was not rested as it was supposed to be. And this theme of rest continues to develop. In, in Joshua, in, in, in 2 Samuel 7, we, we read about how God will give the people rest from their enemies in the land. But that doesn't last because eventually they're exiled. Israel in the north and Judah in the south, off to Assyria and Babylon. But then the prophets, again, take up this theme of rest. And they talk about how God will bring them back into the land and give them rest. And so there's this hope in Ezra and Nehemiah where the walls rebuilt and the city and the foundations, but everybody weeps when they see that temple. They're not quite having rest yet. Until one day, a man who's born in some backwater area gets up and starts 
preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what we read from Hebrews 4 earlier. Did you catch that rest theme there? The passage began, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands. So one more time, rest has been transformed. And it is the rest of salvation, which begins now and extends on into eternity. So friend, have you entered into the rest of God to experience the incredible gift that you don't labor to enter into his family, but Jesus has died for sinners so that if you repent and trust in him, he has brought you in and given you rest. And I will even argue some other day when we have more time that his rest is also bound up with us already experiencing the land rest that was promised. Because the author of Hebrews is going to go on to say in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels' joyful assembly and to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And you've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Friend, if you have experienced salvation, then you have rest in Jesus already with one foot in the heavenly Jerusalem, joining with the angels in singing. And if you have not experienced that, I would love to speak with you more. I'll be right there after the service. But with that, we'll close our first time, our first chapter in this wonderful book of Genesis with a reminder that God's word always does its work. It accomplishes its means. So may that be where our hope is. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the power of it, and for the reality that it always accomplishes its aims. And so we pray that your word would be used on us and in our lives this week, and that you would be glorified in what we say and do. For Jesus' sake, amen.